Hi, welcome to Life Hurts, God Heals. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Ward. And I'm your other host, Kurt Flagel. And I can promise you, this episode is going to be a wild ride. And I don't want to say too much to give it away, but we are interviewing Debbie Freeze, who has a story that contains a lot of darkness, abuse, rejection, abandonment, and even a disorder that created multiple personalities. But that's not the point. Debbie's story is all about walking out of the darkness and into the light of Jesus' love. It's a beautiful story, so why wait? Let's introduce you to Debbie Freeze. So Debbie, I mean, I've had the experience (laughs) of meeting two people who have been directly influenced by you, one more than the other, obviously, Mm -hmm. right? So your son, Zed, he's been on the show before, (laughs) and Denise. Yes, my kids. (laughs) Your kids. And I can tell you, I'm very confident this is going to be a great time, (laughs) because having met both of them, they're just solid people. Honestly, both of them blew me away. Like yeah. Zed, his maturity, amazing. Thank you. So having said that, we know your son's story and we know Denise's story, but we don't know much about you. So tell us a little bit of your story. Like what kind of family did you grow up in as a child? Maybe we start there and see where it goes. Okay. I was born to a 14-year-old. My mom was 14. My dad was 21. And my mom traveled here. You're in California. In California, in the valley, from Minnesota, and gave me up for adoption. And then I was adopted when I was six months old, which in 1969, most babies were adopted within a week of birth. Everything was closed adoption. It was very quick and fast and was really not a typical thing to be adopted like six months or a year. But the foster family that I stayed with, they convinced the adoption agency that I had hydrocephaly because I had a large head. And the lady actually wanted to keep me. And so she had said, she's damaged and needs to go to a special home and blah, blah, blah. The people that adopted me, my mom was a nurse. She had already retired when my brothers were born, and they ended up getting me when I was six months old. They were, I don't know if you've heard of this, but they were Mennonite. Yes. Is that an offshoot of... Amish? Amish, yes. Yeah. So I grew up in a Mennonite home. The denomination I was in was called Mennonite Brethren, so nobody wore the bonnets or the things like that, but we ate all the... German food, and it was very, no dancing, you didn't go to war, because they're pacifists, there was a lot of things like that. Mm. My parents were older, and they were very, very involved in the church, so we went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, my mom had women's Bible study, they had a couple's Bible study, and then we had a small group. But the family that my birth parents were a long line of Satanists, and So my mom decided she didn't want that life for me. And so she left her home and came to California to give me up for adoption, thinking that would keep me safe. My birth father was not happy. So when I was 18 months old, he found me where I lived. And my parents, my mom didn't really want another child. My adoptive parents, she was kind of, uh, got. I think, postpartum. It wasn't 
like common to diagnose that back then after my brothers, but she did not want another child. My dad really wanted a girl. So I was kind of just the afterthought and kind of just there because of her past. She wasn't very affectionate or loving because her role in her family was like the protector and the doer and the cooker and, you know, take care of the brothers and sisters. So she never, you know, didn't hug me, hold me. If I would say like, do you love me? She would say, why are you asking that? Of course I love you and things like that. So I'll just interject. When I turned 16, my mom started going to therapy, got healed from a bunch of stuff, and then our relationship got better. So my mom put me in a preschool. My brothers never went to preschool, but she didn't want just me home when my brothers were at school, and they were quite a bit older than I was. So she put me in a preschool when I was just over a year. And by the time I was 18 months old, my birth father found out where I was and started working at the preschool and started abusing me at that point in time. And... I think I'm going to go back and forth a lot, but it's okay. that preschool, when I left, the people that owned it were murdered and it burned down. And so, like, that's one of those things that, you know, people go, oh, that's not real. Your story's not real. I could prove it in the newspaper and all these things that the pastor that actually got me out of the occult, he checked everything I said. And when I'd say, oh, this is where this happens, he'd go there and... And he was like, you're 100% legit, you know. And so I used to not share my story very often because a lot of people would be like, it's too out there. It's not real. That couldn't have happened, blah, blah, blah. So just in the last couple years, I've, I've been like, I'm tired of not letting people know who I am and my story. And I really just got over the fact that I don't, I really don't care if anyone believes me anymore. (laughs) I know my truth. My family knows my truth. My doctors know my truth, you know, so So I do talk about it now, but back to when I was a child. So my birth father started working there, started abusing me. So that abuse was daily during the week. And then every Saturday night, my entire life until I turned 21. So he was working at the uh, daycare. Enchanted Forest Daycare. Uh And, And he was abusing you at the daycare? Actually, he would take me out a lot. Just the two of you? Mm hmm. It was a very strange, was in a in-home daycare that they had transferred, like a garage was like the schooling kind of area, but it, all the kids in it were under four. There was no older kids. So it was like basically a one, one years old to four potty train to about to start school. So yeah, he would take me out in a suitcase. He would take me out for a walk and he also knew where I lived. So My parents' house, my bedroom was in the front towards the street, and my window never locked. So my life went from learning how to be a good Satanist and also a good Mennonite. So my life was literally split in half, where I was doing church things constantly and then getting abused for doing the church things and not being of the right mind to be able to tell anyone what happened and and stuff like that. There were times growing up, well, let me let me say it this way. I've been a Christian for many years now, but I hated the way that Christians treated people. The Satanists, if you got a flat tire, they would show up with hot chocolate, coffee, tea, $500, three different tires, like four or five people would show up. One in the morning didn't matter. They were constantly there. You never had a need for money. You never had a need for anything. 
And that's the draw, I guess, for them. Christian people, on the other hand, they would say, oh, you should call me if you're having a hard time. I would call and they'd be like, it's 10 o'clock. I have church tomorrow. I cannot talk to you. And I'd be like, then why did you tell me to call you if I was having a hard time? So when I was younger, I guess about six, I had um, good friends in the in the Mennonite church that I played with. And at some point I was at their house and there was a dead bird and I went over and I said, oh, this is the, how you get to the heart and this is the lungs. And I knew all the anatomy of bird and I was very young. And the parents freaked out. And I believe that Jesus had told them this girl needs help. And you can see that there's something very wrong. And their decision was not to tell my parents or anyone at the church or get me help, but to just not allow their child to play with me any longer. That was one of the very, you know, stark contrasts um, from a very young age. So I, I think I should say this up front is that part of the gifting that I have from being a Satanist and being taught this way is that I see angels and demons all the time. It's mm-hmm. why I never go anywhere by myself. My kids, I, I joke with them now because when they were little, if they lied to me, I'd be like, like I'd say, did you brush your teeth? And they'd go... Yeah, and I go, want to try that again? Because I could hear the stuff and I could tell they were lying. They get a lying spirit and I'm like, you want to try that again? Now, I never tell people, like I don't walk up to people and go, mm, you have lust. I don't do that. I'm, I'm used to it, but during certain times of the year, like now, Easter, you know, Catholics have Lent. I guess some other religions do. Um, the Satanists, it's the same. And so Halloween's real bad. Easter, the week before Easter, they have black mass. It's it's just not a good situation. The stuff in the air is worse. So the six weeks before Halloween, the six weeks before Easter are really bad periods of time for me. So most of that means I'm never alone. I'll either have Zed with me, my husband. I, I, I don't go anywhere alone and people find it odd, but it's for safety mostly and for sometimes I, there's so much stuff going on that I can't focus. But it's been a blessing and a curse because we do prayer retreats and I've been able to help people a great deal with getting to their trauma and their hurt and naming the things that they have. Mm-hmm. And I don't tend to, to say, oh, you have worthlessness or hopelessness, but I can get them to talk about that and then I usually make notes and then give it to Andy, and then Andy prays for people. See, Andy it's a Rock, lot. <laughs> who pastors a coastal community here locally in our, our area, is good friends with Debbie, who's who's here. Andy, that you might want to say hello. Hello. <laughs> when you use the, the the phrase in the air, what do you see? If if you don't mind sharing that. Yeah, so for me, like, there's a lot of people that'll say, oh, I see angels, and I see both all of the time. Mm -hmm. So I see all the angels, I see all the different types of angels, I see all the demonic all the time. So I've learned to, like, focus, because it's very hard for me to connect with people, and I get very nervous because I'm like, okay, I can hear their stuff yelling at me, and so it's, it's audible, it's been my whole life, and I think I... I do pretty well dealing with it. Most covens meet Saturday nights. So every Saturday night, I'm up from 10 to 2 praying against the covens. And But in the air, there's certain times where it gets worse, where they're praying stuff in the air. They're praying for this, for that. 
the seasons that we consider, well, I guess not Halloween, but Easter, they are really aggressively praying against, especially Christians. You know, they use Lent as a time to like reflect and get closer to God. There's so many prayers going out from the other side to prevent people from feeling like they're forgiven or that they can start new or whatever. I joke with people, if I go into church and there's not a ton of demons, I'm like, the devil's not worried about this church. I don't want to be here. <laughs> I know it sounds horrible, but if a church does not have a ton of demons, the devil's not worried. And I, that's a red flag for me mm. that you are not doing the Lord's work. <laughs> so a lot of times people will say, oh, there, there must be so much evil in this place or that place. This is kind of a stupid thing. But this past weekend, Zed and I went to Vegas to Pokemon hunt. I lived for 25 years in Vegas. Oh, okay. So... I had people ask me, well, how can you go there? Isn't that like, how can you deal with all the evil there? And I'm like, I have more problem in slow than I do in Vegas. There's more evil spirits in slow because they got a strong coven than in Vegas. Because people assume, people assume that if there's, and I mean, everybody has their stuff. There's so much lust and greed and, you know, worthlessness and all those kind of things in Vegas. But here, I think people are like, oh, we can hide it with our social justice and our this and our that. And the hatred and all the things that come up is huge here. So it's it's difficult. But people are always amazed when I go, no, that, that doesn't bother me. And that doesn't bother me. People say, oh, you can't watch Harry Potter. you know. And I'm like, okay. I can tell you the shows that actually have things in them that I can't watch. But Harry Potter's not one of them. That's been my experience here as well. The thing about slow that from my perspective and, and please feel free to speak into this, from my perspective this feels like hard spiritual ground because a lot of people wear masks. Absolutely. That's when the enemy has power in the unconfessed hidden places. Yeah, which is a lot of why I have been sharing my story. We started doing prayer retreats at the church. I've been really on Andy. If you're not vulnerable, no one's going to be vulnerable. You have to start sharing your life and your struggles and what you go through. I've known Andy for like 15 years. I met him at Calvin Crest. He wanted prayer and we've been friends ever since. Our families are very close. I'm Levi's godmother. But in the last three years... I started coming over more and, you know, and I'm praying for him, praying for him. And it's like layers and people don't understand that. And they think, oh, I can pray once. I'm a Christian. It's all good. And people get really offended if you say you're struggling with demonic stuff. They go, no, I'm a Christian. So there's a whole, you know, is it in you? Is it on you? To me, it doesn't really matter. I mean, the prayers are a little bit different, but it's basically the same. And if people get very, um, they need to say oppressed and not possessed. Great. But people really freak out about that and have a hard time with that. And so I'm trying to make it more knowledgeable that a lot of the stuff that is demonic is emotional type of things like shame, guilt, rejection, abandonment. I I haven't met anyone in my life that's been adopted that doesn't have abandonment. I mean, this is jumping again ahead of my story when I was 16. The amount of abuse and the type of abuse that I had was really bad. I've had 30 surgeries in my life. Most of those, besides having children, were correcting abuse, physical abuse. And I've been stabbed, shot. My body's wrecked with scars. I'm a big Disney person, so the the burns and whip marks on my back are now covered with Disney characters. But because of the abuse, it would get to the point of death. My brain split and, and split and split and split. And so 
I have a very high IQ. I'm not saying that to brag. I started school when I was four at a sixth grade reading level. I had all the intelligence and I had all this and I had the, you know, idyllic Christian family, you know, three kids, two dogs, but my brain was just splitting constantly. I didn't even realize it until I was 21 and gotten out. But when my parents, like my adoptive parents found out, they were like, oh, that makes so much sense because I would take piano lessons and I would take it for a year and I'd be doing really good. And then all of a sudden I didn't know how to play the piano. And my parents were like, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, what do you mean is wrong with me? I don't know how to do this. And they were like, yes, you do. And I was like, no. So I restarted piano lessons six times. And then my parents were like, you're messing with us. We're done. We're not paying for this anymore. So I literally can play you <laughs> the first year of piano a bunch of different ways. But And then math, I did, school was very easy for me, except math, because you had to build on it. Mm-hmm. And I was never there consecutively as me. So I had all these people that would learn addition and then I'd go to subtraction and still be trying to do addition. And so math is very hard. It's, it's one of the main reasons that I didn't pursue getting higher education and things like that, because the math is still like just a block for me. So I have all these personalities. And at one point it was like 240. What? Now they call it dissociative identity disorder, but a lot of people now it's kind of trendy to have that. So I still say, multiple personality disorder because when I got diagnosed and went through all the testing that's what they diagnosed me as and to me that's more along the lines of what I have I all of my alters have names they all are different so now I'm I'm under 30 now so I've done a lot of integrating in the last while but my kids are very um, I have young personalities my kids are very they're very fond of and we do a lot of Disney trips and Pokemon and I usually have Disney clothing on because it's just a balance for me. Uh, My kids would probably be devastated if I integrated a couple of the young personalities because they they hang out with them. I have a six-year-old personality that's very colorful, very sassy. All my kids would be very devastated if she was gone. Yeah, so when you started coming over... Three years ago, one of the things that happened was, at we've, well, we've known you forever, but then we always realized that the little ones inside needed a dad, and Debbie's had that awful experience of Christians over and over and over again saying, we'll be with you, we'll care about you, we'll love you, except when it comes to the time of sacrifice, right? If they have to give up something, if they have to give up their schedule, if they have to get up late at night, if they miss a couple of hours of sleep, if it costs them a little bit of money, if it creates an awkward moment in a conversation, Mm. if their friends or their family go, wait, what? Uh, You're doing what? Are you spending money on, on, on who? Then Christians oftentimes will choose what seems yeah socially acceptable as opposed to the radical love that Jesus gives. So when April and I were talking with Debbie, we were just lamenting that, you know, time and again, she has had people come to her and say, I would love to love the little girls inside of you and be a mom or a dad in that adoptive sense and really care for them and love them and pray for them so that they can get healed. I mean, if you saw a six-year-old horribly traumatized by 12 adult men, would you not do something? And the sad thing is, is that most Christians have said to Debbie, no, I won't. And we just said yes. So we made a room that's all pink and 
has Disney everywhere and that, uh, you know, we play games and watch Disney movies in colors and we got a light bright last weekend and, you know, and we do fun stuff and go to Pokemon events and take her to Disneyland and love her in the way that she really needed to be loved, just like Jesus would, and then watch the healing happen as we do the memory work and the prayer work and the, and just the basics, you know, like, would you like a baked potato? Would you like butter with a baked potato? You know, like the way that a six-year-old would like it. Mm. And uh, so that sort of reparenting is a, has been a, a gift to our family, a profound gift to our family and to our church. And then, you know, uh, Debbie's husband, Dave, is just thrilled. And, and April and I couldn't be more happy. And our kids just love Debbie. She's always been Auntie Debbie. And now Debbie's six-year-old Alter Paige now... My, my two boys get to have a sister who has a lot more money than most six-year-olds and can do fun stuff. So it is, it is a outrageously good time, and it is sacred and beautiful. I think this is a perfect place for us to stop for part one of Into the Light. But don't worry, there's way more of the story to be told. So please make sure you come back for part two. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. And please remember, from God's perspective, you are his beloved. So be loved.